This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, General Aviation continues its relief efforts, this time in Puerto Rico. And Congress passes an FAA funding extension. Also, Santa Monica is wasting taxpayer dollars. And make your plans for 2018 AOPA fly-ins. All right, David, that sounds awesome. You're going to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, folks got to stick around. We got a special guest this week, a guy who has been far and away places that you and I have. He's been away, <laughs> far and away, yeah. high over our earth. Yeah. Scott Parazinski, author of the book, The Sky Below. This guy has pretty much done it all. Uh, medical doctor. Let's see what else. He's climbed Everest. I was going to say, we don't want to give it away, but he has, he has a climbed, he's bagged a big one. Yeah. And uh, most notable here for the podcast, he's an astronaut. And you said earlier that he was a instrument rated commercial seaplane pilot. Yeah. Right on. So, so he's still got his hands in GA. Yeah, yep. He's he's uh, he's been around. So stick around and uh, hear all of his experiences. But let's start with the news. Um, Puerto Rico. It seems like every time the past couple of weeks that we've done the podcast, we've talked about hurricanes. Obviously, terrible for the country, for the residents. This time in Puerto Rico. The story here for us is that General Aviation continues to pitch in and, and do its job to help. Yeah, General Aviation is a shining light there in, in Puerto Rico right now, Ian. We heard from Carlos Reyes. He's the owner-operator of uh, the San Juan Puerto Rico Isla Grande Flying School, and which has been there since the 50s. And he told us that there are a lot of the uh, federal efforts that are based out of that GA airport, a lot of relief efforts that mm-hmm. are based out of there. And he's seen the FEMA people come and go in helicopters, some Osprey coming in and going. And basically, um, Isla Grande has been 
like the hub, a very valuable hub in Puerto Rico amid all this destruction. Yeah, it's um obviously the the mainstream press has covered pretty extensively the relief effort and there's been lots of scrutiny about has it been delayed a little and even from the GA side it seems there was a bit of a delay and part of that I, I guess was fuel avgas apparently was right it was hard, hard to, get. to get and yeah. uh, and a lot of the airplanes were torn up there at that yeah. airfield and other airfields uh, we report on that extensively in the past couple of weeks we should also mention that a lot of GA pilots have gone out of their way with volunteer efforts yes. and outreach efforts yeah. um, in the Florida Keys and in Florida for Hurricane Irma and before that Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. and now Hurricane Maria, which is going to be in, in it for the long haul. Yeah, absolutely. So there'll be general aviation will be taking, uh, you know, there's the immediate relief effort, of course, which uh, I say that light airplanes and avgas uh, burners haven't been as much involved in yet they're they're ramping up now jets have been going since the beginning corporate aircraft right uh, bringing people and and relief supplies but one thing about this one that's interesting is i think we'll see ga continue the long term like you said to bring over contractors um to rebuild the infrastructure absolutely because the airfields there are strategically located really pretty much around the periphery of the island the airfield we're talking about now um Isla Grande is um, the airfield is also known as Fernando Luis Ribas Domenici Airport. Mm. But nonetheless, it's right across from the International Airport. They're almost co-located. And Reyes has been there for a long time, as we mentioned earlier. We also talked with the Civil Air Patrol. Yeah. And uh, Steve Cox told me that the Civil Air Patrol has done something a little bit different for them. You know, they're a lot of times tasked with checking on infrastructure, bridges, things like that. Mm-hmm. They've been getting some aerial photographs of some of the critical roads going through Puerto Rico to pave the way to find out if it's safe for tractor trailer trucks to drive through with water food, medical supplies, things like that. Uh, fascinating. So, yeah, so they don't go three hours down the road only to turn around or have, you know, they know to bring chainsaws with them or whatever the case right. may be. Yeah. And there's a lot of devastation throughout the island, but GA is playing a pretty critical role right there right now. And we, like you said, we hope to uh, see that in the future. I think they'll maintain that that do- position of dominance there. And that'll do nothing but help out um, other folks realizing how important general aviation airports are in times of emergencies like that. Yeah, absolutely. They are links to the outside world, especially in an island community. Um, Yeah, amazing. Okay, so let's move on to FAA funding. Uh, we've talked about the ups and downs of this. This is a good news thing, though, for a change, right? It is. It's, it's in a way, it's a bit of a pause, uh-huh. a bit of a breath. A pause and a reset. Yeah, that's right. So there's been an extension is the short headline on this. There's a six-month FAA funding extension, which is great. The language does not, uh, the bill, I'm sorry, the bill does not include any language to remove air traffic control from the FAA. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was already signed by President Trump. Yeah. So, and so what that tells us really is that because they had to do a six-month extension, that they didn't have the votes. Um, right. There was no way they were going to get it done in time, the standard reauthorization bill. And so that's good. I think we should take uh, take heart in that. The only holdup at the beginning was that there was like flood insurance uh, documents that were added to that. And, that yeah. and I think that was a result of a lot of these storms. Yeah, yeah. It was non-aviation stuff. Right. Obviously, this being a must-pass because it's like you're not going to shut down the FAA. You can't shut it down. Yeah. You've got to keep going. Yeah. So on one hand, like I said, it's like, ah, oh, you can kind of take a little bit of a breath and a pause. But fight's not over. No, not even close. Not for us. Yeah, not even close. We're so. digging in our heels right now. Yeah. It's third and long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, just because the, the extension is six months doesn't right. mean that you sit back for five and a half months and then decide to go to work. Right. Now's the time to really get moving on that. And yeah. actually, we and like we've talked about this earlier, you know, getting in touch with our Congress people, our senators, things like that. Mm-hmm. And also, um, there are some other ways that, that folks could help out, you know, raising awareness for general aviation operations and ATC operations, to keeping mm-hmm. them the way they are. Yeah. So in the office, you know, we get these uh, communications division aggregates uh, stories about GA, and we get mm-hmm. these daily. And it's really been fascinating to see the op-eds around the country. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, uh, folks read the Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal and all the major um, sort of national reach papers. But the, what the congressmen read a lot of times is their local paper. They want to know what it, their constituents exactly. think. And, and, they, and, the, and GA and especially ATC operations where they are right now are so important to you know, folks in the in the breadbasket. Yeah, in rural communities, and so this issue is getting attention in those places. We do see these op eds come through. Yeah, um, both for and against, lots against, which is great. Um, people, especially from those rural communities, recognizing that it could be a, a real problem for them long term with access to the system. Yeah, so. good. And you know, again, it's like handing a another entity a multi billion dollar business if that were to happen, which to me doesn't make sense on any level at all whatsoever. No. Plus, and you and I both are avid um, aviators, and I, I really have not ever had a problem with ATC, especially during Hurricane Irma relief efforts that mm-hmm. I participated in, and I think you've been flying recently too. The folks have been super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a problem worth fi- There's no problem, so yeah. you don't have to fix anything. Yeah, what they say? If it ain't broke, right? The, the main thing, really, you know, going back to this before we leave the subject, is that, you know, we talked at the beginning about the six-month extension. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the main hindrance with ATC moving forward is we just need a more stable way to fund that system. Yeah. Then the innovations will roll out just like clockwork. Yeah, which, ironically enough— if Congress would do their job, they are the funders. Yeah. You know, they provide the stable funding. Right. So if they just do their job and fund it as they should, then okay. it would be fine. I'm with you on that. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to Santa Monica. Don't move on too quickly because there's not much runway there to move on to. Yeah. If things go as we think they will. Yeah. So we updated you before, obviously, the, the plan where they were going to shorten the runway in anticipation of closing it in a few years. And so... The plan now has been approved uh, by the city. The city has issued a notice that they're going to shorten it, and uh, it's going to be 3,500 feet. But I don't think it's over yet. Mm. I think that there's, no? I think you I recently, so? you know, in, in the clips you were just talking about, yeah. there was a little chatter recently about the fact that this might not be a done deal. Yeah. And, uh, but according to the documents that folks have signed and, and uh, there have been plans made already on how to do this and how to shorten the runways and turn the, the areas into like a grassland or some kind of a grazing area. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that there's some funding issues over that. It supposedly is going to take several million dollars to convert that. Yes. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that there's a, there might be a little bit of groundswell movement to say, wait a minute. Who's going to fund that? Yeah, and how? Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. They've um, some of the politicians I think have been so strident in their opposition that now that the residents look at like they're like, wait a second, it costs money to close an airport, right? And it's right. like, why are we spending money on that? Well, so. It costs money to actually tear up part of the runway, yeah. and it costs money to rebuild the area near there. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty interesting. So they're supposed to start work on that just in the next couple of days and conclude it by December thirtieth, but. Obviously, shorting it to 3,500 feet, the goal for the city is to reduce jet traffic, which, you know, that that size runway, it will have the effect of reducing some jet traffic. Yeah. Not all, 
Uh, not by any means. So 3,500 feet is enough to land a jet and take off again? Some of them. That's interesting. Some of them. Yeah, so ongoing always with Santa Monica, and, and we'll keep up with that one. As the SMO turns. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, let's, let, more fun. Let's get happy now. Let's do it. Airports that we want to support. Yeah. 2018 fly-ins. There's some great ones coming up. Yeah. So we're going to crisscross the country again. Uh, AOPA announced the 2018 fly-ins. Uh, there's some gateways over in the mountain northwest, the high desert mountains, and in the Midwest, and also the Gulf Coast. Yeah, so a couple of locations that I'm personally really looking forward to. Missoula, Montana. We, we're doing a west-to-east sweep here. Okay, let's do so, it. So Missoula, Montana, June uh, 15th to 16th. Santa Fe, New Mexico, September 14th to 15th. Carbondale, Illinois. You remember we talked about that with the eclipse? We did. That was yeah. a huge center for eclipse watchers. Yeah, October 5th and 6th. And Gulf Shores, Alabama, October 26th and 27th. That's nice. Now, I have not been to Missoula, Montana, mm. but I've been nearby to Big Sky. Have you? It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. And <laughs> we just don't have any, con- or I, I don't have any concept of this living on the East Coast, but it's like I was looking at, you know, oh, what's close to Missoula? And maybe we'll hit uh, some of the other cities while we're out there. There's and it's nothing like, really no, that close. I mean, oh my gosh, hours and hours <laughs> away. So, but beautiful flying country out there. Absolutely. And for a high mountain experience, it's going to be top notch. Yes. My, my good buddy Colin Graham is a, a hot air balloonist out there. He also flies the King Air. Hmm. So I'm going to need to talk to Colin to make sure he's going to be on board for that. Yeah. But Missoula is a great place to go. It's not that far from Yellowstone. Yeah, right. That's absolutely right. And so, all those great in uh, Idaho flying and yeah, backcountry so flying. Let's go plan a vacation and do that. Yeah. So we'll have the same two-day format that we've had this year. Um, the first day being those uh, paid, in-depth, hands-on seminars. They're pretty intensive workshops, but they were great and, and highly uh, anticipated and a, a good participation with that. Yep. And then Saturday will be the free seminars, the aircraft display, the pilot town hall with Mark. Right. Ice cream social. Ice cream social. Yum, yum, yum. The cheap pancake breakfast yeah. and lunch. And so all that's kind of the same. They'll be camping the flyouts, uh, so it's it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to have some flyouts as well. There's going to be some some cool locations uh, associated with the fly-ins announced soon. Yeah. So our podcast listeners can stay tuned for that. Yeah. Now, one other thing I want to say is, even though we're talking about 2018 and folks are starting to ramp it up, we're not done yet in 2017. No. As we record this, we have two more. Yeah. And uh, there's one coming up this weekend. Yep. In Groton, Connecticut. And then uh, finishing out the year in Tampa, October 27th, 28th. Which we should mention, Tampa is is fine. Uh, there was some concern about possible damage from Hurricane Irma, but that did not happen. Yeah. And they've opened their arms, and they're more than willing to host us, and they're looking forward to that. Yeah, they said, uh, they called us just a, a day or two after the hurricane and said, hey, no damage, come on down. Which is great. Yeah. Yep, so that's going to be a blast. Yeah, Florida's a great place to fly. You know, we talked a little bit about um, about Montana. Now, New Mexico, I have been out there mm-hmm. for the for the Hot Air Balloon Festival. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool. Santa Fe is just gorgeous. Yes. Now, what about Carbondale? Have you been in that area? I've been sort of around the area. I haven't been to Carbondale specifically. But, you know, one thing about Carbondale is SIU is Southern there. Illinois University yeah. is the Salukis. Yep. My, yep. my wife actually went to Southern Illinois University. Oh, I, did she? I've been asking her what a Saluki is. I still don't know. Is it a dog? I don't know. Or a flower? That's a Hoya. I don't know. I can't keep it. <laughs> but they but they have a jam up the, the flying program for sure. Yes, they, they absolutely do. And they were gracious hosts during the solar eclipse. Yeah. 
And uh, if I recall, that was the longest duration of the eclipse was mm-hmm. over Carbondale, yeah, two minutes it was a big, and forty seconds. Big spot. That's right. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. <laughs> now you were telling me um, before the show um, about Gulf Shores, Alabama, uh, that Mobile's not too far from there. Yeah. So I've been to Mobile, and that's where Continental is. Right. And so there's an opportunity there to visit Continental if you're coming to Gulf Shores. It's really just across the bay. It's very close. And it's not far from Pensacola either. Yep. All and, kinds of cool. And Navy we're talking about there. the Navy Blue Angels. Yeah. We're talking the museum about the, is there. The Naval Aviation Museum, yeah. yes, outstanding place to go. Yeah. And uh, that would be a, a real good venue as well for folks in the Southeast. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. So, one other thing, I guess, coming back to this year um, that we should mention, just if you're looking for somewhere else to fly, something else to do in the weekends between the fly ins. So, the, kind of the middle of October here, it's going to be the Indy race for Red Bull. Oh, right. We yeah. forgot to mention that. Yeah. So the Red Bull Air Races, they're going to finish up their season at the Indy Motor Speedway. On October is that 15th and 16th is yeah. that weekend. Yep. And um, Now, the, a- AOPA has hosted a party there on the bricks before. Yes. And we'll be doing that again this year. That's going to be great. Yep. 14th and 15th it is. Okay. October. 14th and 15th in October coming up. So we got Connecticut. Then yep. we've got Indy. Yep. And then we've got Tampa. You got it. It's going to be fun. Let's fly. <laughs> All right. So last story we want to talk about. This is a bit of an odd one. And this, the, the reason this one worries me a little bit, and I think we'll, we'll get into it's really more about airplanes and less about drones. But one of the bigger drone pieces of news that's come out recently is that the government has over 10 sites, and they're, they're an interesting mix of sites. It's like Department of Interior sites as well as humongous parks yeah. in big cities. Yeah. They have, um, they have restricted drone flying completely. Effective October fifth. Now that is weird. Yeah, to me, it is. And then, uh, um, but I could see it. Okay, if you're on vacation with your with your family, uh, you might not want to be disturbed by this. Maybe. Yeah, but um, I but mean not- that's kind of the way I feel. But you know, that's not the reason. They're saying national security and law enforcement agencies, and it's because they're wondering about weaponized drones. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. I'm not sure I get that that part of the deal. Fascinating. I but, guess they've seen that a little bit overseas well, in yeah. some of the battlefields and stuff. These personal drones that can be weaponized. So let's run through the list because it's I, I yeah, found the, the list really fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Statue of Liberty. Boston National Historic Park. Independence National Historic Park in Philly. Folsom Dam in California. Yep, that one caught me off guard. Glen Canyon Dam, Lake Powell, Arizona. And Grand Coulee Dam in Washington. The Hoover Dam. And Jefferson National Memorial in St. Louis. Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. The Shasta Dam in California. Yeah, so an interesting mix of sort of national parks, prominent landmarks, and then huge infrastructure projects. It is. I can understand the infrastructure a little bit, the dams, you know, because it could lead to loss of life. But I don't quite get, you know, some of the other ones. Mount Rushmore. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. Actually, that's you know, in the middle of nowhere. Have you I been know. there? No, I haven't. Yeah. I, you know the funny thing about the dams, though, it's like how much. I, I'm not. I'm no explosive. How experts. much damage would a drone do? Seriously. Well, an air and we have seen, unfortunately, air. You know, single engine aircraft yeah. crashing into buildings. Yeah. And there was virtually no damage. They bounce off. Yeah. I mean, really, in a drone into a massive concrete dam, I I can't imagine. I don't get it. I tell you what, it reminds me of. Hmm. Taking my shoes off when I'm in line at the airport <laughs> because it's like, you the know, one person tried to light their toe on fire yes. or something. <laughs> and, you know, I just I just don't get that. Oh, uh, I know. I know. Oh, yeah. So it is it is a little interesting. And of course, what's worrisome about it is that even though 
they are drones and there are different regulations for drones. We're all in the airspace. And so mm-hmm. you do start to wonder if natural questions then lead into aircraft and rotocraft. And, you know. Oh, as you're sort of grandfathering that in, yeah. lead, one leading to the next. Yes, I didn't that, really think that of that. me. Yeah, uh, that, that would me. be a that would be a problem for us. Yeah. Um, let's hope it stays with the smaller, you know, uh, unmanned drones. Yeah. In that area, but e- even still, there now there's still a lot of national parks that have uh, legislation against drones, and uh, we're we're starting to see some local municipalities try to do this kind of thing, mm-hmm. but they're kind of being shut down because the FAA is sort of over all that airspace. Yeah, as they should be. Right. Yeah. So hey, speaking of drones, okay. We, we know somebody who's in drones these days. We do, don't we? Yeah, we Maybe sure do. Maybe our guest. Yeah. We mentioned him on the top, Scott Perzinski, new author, and um, also drone startup CEO. Oh, boy, here we go. As well as climbed Everest, been in space, medical doctor, and pilot. Well, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. So, Scott, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Tell me, so where, where are you? Where are we talking to you today? Thrilled to be with you, Ian. I'm uh, actually speaking to you from my home of Houston, Texas, uh, where I've been now for well over 25 years. Wow. And now, obviously, you're in Houston because uh, you served for decades as an astronaut. That's right. Uh, I, I never imagined I'd be a Texan, but uh, I really love the place now. And the space program is what uh, recruited me here to, uh, to Houston and, uh, of course, the Johnson Space Center. Yeah, so um, we'll get into all that, and so we'll leave, we'll leave that for the end. We'll, we'll make it a cliffhanger. Um, tell me a little bit about you, your background, and, and how you came to be where you are today. Well, I, I grew up in the shadow of the Apollo program. So my father was an engineer that helped design the Saturn V boosters that first took men to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, uh, so like all kids of my generation, we all wanted to grow up and become astronauts. I just sort of had never grew out of that dream, and... Uh, Thankfully, I uh, was able to, to fulfill that dream with a lot of hard work. But uh, my educational background, I, I ended up going uh, through medical school and um, doing a lot of research to help astronauts uh, thrive and survive in uh, long-duration spaceflight. And that was sort of the, the entry credentials that got me uh, qualified to become a NASA astronaut hmm. many years ago. So now you, um, you say that you, you've always dreamed of becoming an astronaut. Like you said, you grew up with uh, kind of, you know, with your father helping you kind of blaze that path a little bit in terms of uh, at least uh, bringing you to the community. So why not uh, become a pilot? What was it about medicine that really interested you? And when did you decide to pursue that? Well, Ian, I, it, I wanted to do it all. So I, I actually have had a lifelong uh, love of, of aviation. And uh, you know, I have my uh, commercial IFR, multi-single-engine uh, C ratings and I, I love everything about aviation, and, and fortunately, uh, as an astronaut, I got a chance to um, you know, fly quite a bit and actually get paid to fly. You know, uh, one of the, the great perks of the job is is the training that we get to do in uh, NASA's T-38 fleet. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I did, for a, a time in high school, consider uh, pursuing naval aviation, but I didn't really kind of get that bug until the senior year of, of uh, high school at that time. At least you really needed to have your your act together. You had to do a, some sort of a physical fitness qualification your junior year, and then of course you had to get uh, congressional letters of recommendation. And 
I just decided at that point I would I would uh, go the civilian route, hmm. becoming now, a pilot. Now, you also spent a lot of your childhood overseas. So how much do you think that influenced uh, your decision and maybe even your access to aviation at that point? Right. Great question. I, I was very fortunate to travel a lot uh, in those early years. Uh, and now, of course, we, we take air transport for granted and we do it every week as part of our our jobs, but back then it was it was kind of special, and I got a chance to see a lot of the world through my my parents' uh, wanderlust, I guess. But uh, ended up living in West Africa, in the Middle East, and in Europe, all the way from grade school to high school. That that really solidified my love of aviation and travel. So it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people when they when they assume that somebody is is laser focused on a goal, like you, um, you you definitely were this idea of being an astronaut. It almost seems as if you've taken all these diversions, but in a way, they they just sort of are these interesting insights and and uh, I would say compliments that help round out how you got there. I mean, it's almost as if you hadn't done some of these things, you wouldn't have gotten to where you were. I, I don't think so. I mean, there, there really is no formula for becoming an astronaut, of course, but um, I, I recognize that certainly as the the space shuttle era was coming into fruition, there was going to be more and more science that would be done, uh, a need to not only take care of astronauts and on short and long duration flights, but also to do cutting edge science in, in the life sciences. And so I was really fascinated by human physiology and, and uh, human adaptation to extreme environments. And and so, uh, yeah, I was able to kind of blend the, those two passions in my life. And so you went to, uh, you did your undergrad at Stanford, uh, went to med school, Actually, there as well. Let, yeah, yeah. And let me rephrase that because I was you did your residency at Brigham and Women's, right? And then over at Denver, I get, I was slightly confused about that. Yeah, so I spent my first year of my post medical school training at Harvard at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and then I moved out to Denver, Colorado for emergency medicine and trauma training, which is really an exciting place to be as well. But all the time, kind of focused on this one goal of uh, of trying to become an astronaut. Exactly. Uh, although I knew it was a, a long shot. Um, I had a, a long range view that I'd love to, to fly in space or at least be part of the space program in some way. So I, I knew that even if I didn't become an astronaut, I'd be able to support the program as a, as a scientist as, and as a physician. Hmm. I tell people all the time, you, know, you really need to love what you're doing. Um, and if you do that, you know, you'll, you'll really excel. And um, so my time in the ER and as a, as a scientist really helped me uh, land the job with NASA. And now most people, I guess, you know, going to med school would be enough. But uh, you, you had this really interesting uh, pursuit while you're going through it all of, uh, of competitive luge. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, as one does, right? No, it was a, kind of a fluke uh, opportunity that presented itself. I was uh, 24 at the time in, in medical school, and one of the, the top finishers at the 1984 Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games uh, uh, was going around the country trying to recruit athletes from other sports to participate in luge, which, as you're probably aware, is, it's a crazy sport. Uh, high velocity, high Gs, going down a, a very steep, icy track. And I had seen it in the Olympics and thought, I would love to give that a try someday, but I'll never get the opportunity. But lo and behold, I saw this flyer at the gym that this tryout was going to take place. And basically, it consisted of some agility drills and physical fitness uh, capabilities, but then also riding a wheeled sled down a steep hill. And uh, <laughs> I, I loved it. <laughs> and I was, I was hooked on it. I, I did well. And so they invited me to Lake Placid to try out the sport for real on ice. And and so I was able to then uh, spend the next three seasons preparing and ideally competing in the, the next Olympics. 
And you did you did really well. I mean, I think a lot of people would go into that thinking, oh, this would be a fun hobby. But you really worked at it and, and came pretty darn close. Yeah, it's not one of those things that you can do uh, half-baked. You know, uh, the, the stakes are high. Just like, you know, anytime you, you turn the crank on an aircraft, even if you've done it a, a million times before, you can't let your guard down. And especially, you know, feet forward on a loose track traveling at 85 miles an hour, uh, you, you have to take it very, very seriously. And, uh, and so I trained really, really hard for it. Developed some skills that actually helped me throughout my medical and um, an astronaut career as well. Just the ability to pre-visualize what I'm about to go do and to prepare for success, but but also to have a plan B if, if things don't go perfectly per plan. And it's uh, you mentioned something you learned, and it's kind of a theme because you uh, one thing that we haven't even touched on yet is your mountaineering. I guess not satisfied with uh, competing at the highest level of luge. And uh, being in space, you're you're also um, you've climbed Everest. Yeah, I, I started climbing when I was in my teens, and uh, you know, the the more you climb, uh, the more you read about epic climbs, uh, the more you start to daydream. Well, what would you know those uh, lofty Himalayan peaks be like, and what would it be like to actually stand atop Everest? And having seen it from uh, the vantage point of Earth orbit, I daydreamed from that perspective, you know, gosh, it would be incredibly amazing to actually plant my boot prints on the top of the world. And so over a number of years, I you know, trained for the, uh, the climb and uh, prepared myself technically as, as well as mentally and, and so on. And I had my first attempt in, in 2008. Didn't quite make it. I had a very serious uh, injury high on the mountain uh, in 2008, but I did return in 2009 to, to stand on top of the world, which is a beautiful place to be. Yeah, wow. Wow. Um, okay. So tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about, about your flying. You've, uh, again, in med school, um, as if you weren't busy enough, um, (laughs) you, uh, you spent some time at the airport. So tell me about it. How was your training and and how was it fitting it in when you were so busy and, and, uh, that sort of thing? Well, it was really one of the, one of the most exciting things I'd ever done. I'd always wanted to, uh, to learn how to fly. I didn't have the means, uh, earlier in life. But of course, when you're in medical school and doing clinical rotations, you don't have the time. That was my limiting consumable at the time, I guess you'd call it. So I would fly a lot on the months when my, my workload was the lightest. And then I would do a rotation in neurosurgery. And I was on call every third night and up all night and you know uh, working with patients and, and doctors and nurses. So completely exhausted. And I wouldn't fly for you know, four to six weeks. So it was very stop and go. And not the most efficient way to, to get your private ticket, but, yeah, yeah. but I, I persevered and, and finally uh, did get my private single-engine land uh, right before graduation. And where'd you learn to fly? Palo Alto, uh, Palo Alto Airfield, uh, right uh, down the, the street from Stanford, and, and then uh, you know, kept up with my, my flying as best I, I could for the years since. That's great. And so uh, what about today and, and the years in the year since? You mentioned you've added a number of certificates and ratings. So what, did, what are you doing these days? Well, I'm flying other people's planes whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a, a, a tech startup CEO, so uh, all of my money and time are, are going into that. But my technology actually has uh, a very strong aviation bent. And uh, my, my company is called Fluidity Technologies. We have a, a single in, uh, single-handed uh, controller, rather, powered by artificial intelligence that allows us to move through physical and virtual space uh, with great precision, with minimal training. So hmm. um, right now, our, our entry market is the drone space, but ultimately fly-by-wire helicopters and uh, other types of UAVs, ROVs, and so on will, uh, we believe, be powered by these types of controllers. Um, 
most of my flying these days is uh, drones. And then whenever I can uh, get in the the right seat of uh, a friend's plane, I, I, I take that opportunity. So it brings up a great question, actually, and it's not... Uh I don't want to get us too far down the drone world, but obviously being in it, you, you have a certain point of view. But tell me about um, pilots who might feel some trepidation about drones entering the airspace. Um, how do you view that? Well, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's a valid concern. Uh, there, there's uh, not a whole lot of regulation, as you know, and uh, it doesn't take any uh, skill to, to go buy a drone and uh, take it out of the box and, and try and figure out how it how it flies. To fly it well actually takes quite a bit of mastery. The the controls as they come out of the box are non-intuitive. And so that's one of the areas that we aim to fix, making these things such that in five minutes of instruction, you can fly with with precision and uh, stay out of harm's way. The systems are getting smarter, I think, uh, you know, collision avoidance systems and so on. But, you know, the airspace is going to become more and more crowded and we need to make sure that they can be operated safely. And my, my company is hopefully going to be part of that solution. That's cool. That's great. And so you uh, you did keep flying over the years, um, like like we talked about, added a number of certificates and ratings. And, and you already mentioned a little the um, the T-38, uh, which is, interestingly, it's one, when I've heard from astronauts, one of the perks of the job, and they yes. always mention the T-38. <laughs> um, so how, how was it? What, what was it like flying that after, after having flown one fifties? Yeah, exactly. You know, starting with a Cessna 150, and then the next day, you know, I, I started, you know, in, in single engine prop aircraft and, and then became an astronaut. And, you know, uh, a couple months later had my first top in a T-38, which, you know, it, it blows the doors off, you know, in terms of the, the, the scan pattern that you need to maintain. And the fact that, you really are flying the aircraft every second. Um, you know, to hold it, even just simply holding an altitude, it's it's something that you you can't let go of. It, it's very prone to pilot-induced oscillations, uh, PIOs, and and so airspeed and altitude maintenance, uh, just flying straight and level is is uh, a real task. Mm. Uh, so it it really upped my game as a pilot. I, I felt I had sort of mastered uh, the Cessna 152. Uh, you can kind of get ahead of that aircraft, but the uh, the T-38, every, every second you were in that airplane, you, you were adjusting the trim, and of course you're going so fast, you're changing frequencies all the time. And when I, when I first started, we had the T-38A, which didn't have the uh, enhanced avionics and, and, uh, and radios in it. So you know, it was a lot of turning dials and, and head, head down in the cockpit. A, a really great workout as an aviator. Yeah, fantastic. And so they use it primarily for transport and I guess some, some basic training kind of stuff. But what was a typical flight like? Well, so we, we used it for what uh, we term spaceflight readiness training. So, you know, the, the operational tempo, uh, dealing with uh, air traffic control, similar to mission control in Houston. You're, you're working with a ground controller. Uh, you're, you're in a potentially hostile environment. You know, if you make the wrong uh, decisions, uh, there are consequences. So it's not a simulator that your actions have real consequence. And and so that intensity of the training plus the, the crew coordination, the cockpit resource management, um, really is a, a great method of preparing for the rigors of, of a space shuttle flight in particular. You know, on a space shuttle mission, you're up for one to two weeks, uh, very tightly scheduled flight plans. And so you have to be very, uh, very crisp with the, uh, the aviation, uh, the, the navigation and the comm at all times. And, yeah. and so it, I found it to be a really great way to get the right mindset for going up into space. Hmm. 
Oh, that's interesting. I guess I had always assumed that it was primarily a, um, I don't know, a sort of limited G training and, um, you know, like I said, transport. But it's it's really interesting that they use it more of a, as a real world. Obviously, it can't simulate a lot of exact stuff that you're doing, but in terms of, uh, like you mentioned, the pace and the flow and just sort of operating procedures. That's that's cool. Right. The operational realism, you know, taking actions that have, you know, significant consequence. Hmm. Um, that. That was really drilled home. And, and you're right. We, we, of course, would use the, uh, the aircraft to, to pull Gs, especially uh, right before our launches. We would go out over the, the uh, Atlantic off of uh, Cape Kennedy and pull some 3G uh, turns and kind of get our bodies calibrated to the, uh, the launch uh, that we'd be doing in a couple of days. But And so tell me about some of your other flying over the years, some of the other cool experiences you've had. I, I love mountain flying, uh, in particular, you know, the Rockies. Uh, spent a, a couple of wonderful years living in uh, Evergreen, Colorado, right outside of Denver. And so uh, really became an aficionado of uh, flying in and out of some of those beautiful airfields, uh, Telluride, Leadville, Buena Vista, wow. uh, Gunnison. And so they're incredible places to kind of skirt the high ridge lines. Uh, I'm, I've spent a lot of time climbing in those mountains as well, the Colorado 14ers, the 14,000 foot peaks that dot the state. And so it was really fun for me to kind of cruise along and, and see the summits that uh, I just uh, stood atop. That's my favorite type of flying for sure. And uh, and what about airplane? Is, is it still the, the T-38? Uh, well, I, I would say that the, the most wonderful plane that I've ever flown is the T-38. I, I didn't have the the opportunity to, to fly through the, the military and, and fly all the, the amazing machinery that's currently in the sky. But, um, you know, to get a chance to fly in the T-38 was extraordinary. Um, but, you know, I, I really love uh, the Lancers. And uh, I've had a chance to fly Fairmont in Lake Amphibians. Oh, and uh, yeah. that's another aircraft that, it, you know, if, if I had, you know, the, the winning lottery ticket, I wouldn't mind having a <laughs> nice Amphib like that. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Cool. So tell me, uh, you know, I, I feel like we got to talk about it. And, and uh, certainly you've, I'm sure, over the years and over the various interviews, tried to describe it, basically put into words what can't be described. But I thought the book in particular, you did a really nice job with talking about your first moments in orbit. So walk us through that and then and then a little bit about some of the various space flights you took. Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Well, you know, the, you're right. It's so difficult to put the most extraordinary human experience that I can imagine at least into, into words. I don't think there's uh, a human, human being alive with the eloquence to, to do it justice, but, uh, imagine, um, you know, sort of out of body experience, you know, you're, you're looking down at your home planet passing beneath you at, at five miles a second and, and you're seeing a sunrise or a sunset every, every 45 minutes, uh, um, the full spectrum of light coming up from behind the earth, earth limb, seeing the planet, in, in three dimensions from a, you know, a God's eye perspective. I'm sure, sure you've seen um, IMAX movies and, and seen the, the intensity of the colors of, of planet Earth from, from Earth orbit. But uh, there, there's an added dimension that can't be put into words when you, you realize that you're, you're actually a human satellite. You're floating inside the space shuttle that's also in free fall around the planet, and you're zooming across uh, North America in, in just a few minutes' time. And you know, some of my most incredible memories are being outside on spacewalks. And, you know, I remember one spacewalk that uh, Chris Hadfield and I did. We actually flew through uh, the southern lights, uh, just just holding on with our fingertips, traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. And, you know, the, this curtain of very pale light extending up to our altitude and, 
to see uh, places that you'd like to visit uh, someday from, you know, you have these uh, mental transformations and, uh, you know, flying over the Himalayas and, and quickly imagining yourself, transporting yourself down to the, uh, the summit of Everest or down to the, the Great Barrier Reef. It's uh, an amazing life experience that I, I'm really excited about this day and age where so many more people are going to have the opportunity, hopefully, with companies like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, where not just a few hundred people have had a chance to fly in space, but you know, a few hundred people a month will get a chance to fly in space in a few years' time. And I think that will, that will change everything. And um, so you you did a number of missions, and I, I particularly enjoyed reading about the Mir experience, where you did tons and tons of incredibly rigorous and detailed training uh, to have, unfortunately, what must have been a pretty big disappointment <laughs> in the end. But um, but tell me about some of the missions that you that you did do and some of uh, the experiments that you carried out. Sure. Well, uh, my first flight was uh, a study of the Earth's atmosphere. In fact, focusing primarily on the ozone layer. So we had. Uh, satellite, as well as a lot of instruments in our payload bay that looked at the Earth's uh, ozone layer, in, including the Antarctic ozone hole, and characterizing that. I flew up to the Russian space station Mir as um, uh, a lead spacewalker, and we conducted a, a, the very first joint U.S.-Russian spacewalk from the space shuttle, hmm. which is really a wonderful life experience, getting outside of a foreign uh, space station. And then uh, perhaps the, the coolest life experience imaginable getting a chance to go fly in space with my boyhood hero, John Glenn. Um, that was, uh, you know, perhaps the, the greatest American of our time. And, uh, certainly my boyhood hero, uh, who took the very first orbital flight for the United States back in 1962. And he came back to fly at age 77 and I was assigned as his personal physician on that flight. So, uh, Kind of a you know high stress job you know making sure that you know <laughs> Senator Glenn came back alive yeah, but yeah <laughs> and, and then I had a couple of flights uh, to assemble and uh, repair the International Space Station hmm. at the end of my career. How uh, flying with with Senator Glenn? Um, tell me about I guess his mood and and leading up to the flight and uh, the mood of the astronaut corps and having him aboard. Well, we were all starstruck, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, here's the guy that opened up the frontier for all of us. And uh, so I remember when he walked into our office the very first time, uh, we were you know, tongue-tied and uh, we weren't sure what to call him. Uh, but the first thing he, out of his mouth was, uh, hey, everybody, my name is John. If any of you guys call me Senator Glenn, I'm just going to ignore you. <laughs> I'm just John <laughs> or payload specialist number two. And... Um, he had a, a really disarming way about him, even though he was you know, incredibly famous and, and uh, just a, a brilliant, uh, accomplished human being. He just wanted to be one of the crew. And, uh, and that carried out to his personal life as well. You know, if you were to go out to eat at a restaurant with him, he would take time to uh, shake everybody's hand, talk to them, you know, not in a, a quick, uh, hey, I'm, I've got to get out of your way, but he who would make time for everyone. He was just a genuinely warm person, and uh, he was just thrilled to get a chance to come back to fly. Back in the day, he was such a national hero and asset that President Kennedy basically told him, you're, we can't risk losing you, so you're not going to fly again. Yeah. And uh, so he waited patiently for 37 years, uh, and he got a second chance. Yeah, wow. You mentioned the, some of the commercial operations and you're working on, you know, in the drone space and, and sort of future tech. So you must think about future space flight and exploration. There's always the ongoing debate. Do you go back to the moon? Do you reach for Mars? 
you know, kind of what's next. What do you think? I mean, if you were in, if you were the president, if you set NASA's budget, what would you do? I, I believe that uh, the moon is actually the, the most ideal test bed for us to do uh, planetary uh, R&D. So for us to develop the, the tools and techniques and, and robust systems that would allow us to go places beyond. In particular, I, I, I believe it's the ultimate human destiny to, uh, to explore Mars. And there are other really interesting destinations with our own solar system. Europa, Enceladus, and Titan are these ice-encrusted moons that uh, have liquid uh, beneath their surfaces that might actually harbor life as well. So, But the fact that the moon is only three days away, for us to learn how to uh, live and work and live off of the land in a very dusty, uh, challenging environment would serve us well. So I, I think we ought to buy down risk. Uh, we still have lots of science and important work to do on the moon. We 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 landed six times. Uh, we did some outstanding pioneering work during those six landing missions, but there's lots more that we could do. And I, I would hope that in the not-too-distant future, we would create an outpost there similar to what we have at the South Pole of our own planet, you know, the Amundsen-Scott South Pole base, we could set up a, a similar outpost on the moon and really learn how to live off of the land there and use those technologies to go places beyond. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, and so what about you? I mean, you've, um, you've been to space, you've been to the top of the world, you're a diver, you've competed in Olympic trials, you're, you're a doctor. Uh, what what next? What do you do after all that? Well, you know, my bucket list has never been fuller, uh, quite honestly. You know, that I think we live in an incredibly exciting time in history when, you know, there's this incredible enhancement of, of all of our technologies and big data analytics. So I think we can go back to places, even if we've been there many, many times before, with a greater toolkit and learn a, a great deal more. So um, there are many places on the globe that I've yet to visit my bucket list, as I said, is is huge, both in kind of extreme environments. I would I would love to get to the bottom of the ocean, the Marianas Trench, but uh, I'm equally uh, excited about uh, the Great Barrier Reef and uh, even just cities of the world that I haven't been to yet. Mm. And I, I guess just closer to home, I'm really excited about growing uh, the technology company that I, I mentioned to you and and leveraging that for. The greater good. I, I think there are ways in which we can extend human presence through telepresence as well. So teleoperation of assets uh, using controls uh, not dissimilar to the ones that, that we're developing with Validity that we might one day, you know, here in Houston, operate a surgical robot on someone in sub-Saharan Africa. So figuring out ways to leverage our technology to to benefit millions of lives around the world. That, that gets me up in the middle of the night excited to go to work. That's great. Okay, Scott, The Sky Below is the book. Scott Parazinski, you can find it on Amazon. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Ian. Thanks. So, David, I, I was floored that of all the things that Scott did uh, in all the space flights, one of the things that he made a point of mentioning was um, flying with John Glenn. And it, it just goes to show you, it's like whether you're on Earth or up in space or whatever, it's like it's the people. It's the experience that you have it with, right? Yeah, it is. And so John Glenn went into outer space as a senator, right? He was in his he, 80s? Uh, I think mid to late 70s. Okay. Yes, right. absolutely. 
and did some experiments. And yeah. I, if I'm not mistaken, he came out of that just fine. He did. He sure did. Well, and he went into it just fine in a couple of decades before that, and it's still a great American hero. Yeah. So really fascinating talk with Scott. Um, pick up his book. It's a, it's a fun, quick read. The Sky Below. Yeah. It's great to talk to him. All right. So I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk on the Sporty's Takeoff app and on iTunes. All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. See you next time for Hangar Talk. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.